In its response to the UN Security Council's demands to suspend uranium enrichment, Iran has said it is ready to enter serious talks about the issue. The current situation, however, remains unclear as to whether Iran will actually meet the call to suspend enrichment by the 31st of August deadline. Professor Dan Joyner is an expert on Iran and nuclear proliferation at Warwick School of Law. Dan, perhaps we should start by explaining how we've reached the announcements this week. How have we got to where we are today? Well, try to skip over pretty quickly what we covered in the last podcast. In February, the uh, the issue of Iran's nuclear portfolio was referred by the IAEA to the Security Council. Let's then skip ahead to what's happened most recently. A couple of months ago, uh, an incentives package was offered to Iran by the permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany. That package was to persuade Iran to give up uranium enrichment on its own soil. And the package included a number of incentives, including uh, the restoration of uh, trade in uh, civilian aircraft parts, uh, the possibility of restored diplomatic relations with the United States, and uh, uh, help with nuclear technology, civilian nuclear technology. So all these things were part of the the incentives package. Iran, uh, now this is a couple of months ago, said that it would respond by August 22nd to this incentives package. Then... Just a couple of weeks ago, in a sort of an enigmatic move, I think, the Security Council passed Resolution 1696, in which it demanded that Iran stop uranium enrichment on its soil and gave it a deadline for doing that uh, of August, of the end of August, so the 31st. Now we're in sort of a, a position where Iran said that it was, would respond to the incentives package by yesterday, but then in a sense it was diplomatically preempted by the Security Council Resolution 1696, which demanded that it stop uranium enrichment by the 31st. So we're in a bit of a limbo period here where uh, they responded to the original uh, incentives package, uh, and, and it's still being looked at by diplomats, but it's fairly clear and, uh, in the statements of uh, the Supreme Leader of Iran and the, the President in the last few days, it is fairly clear that they are not going to uh, give up uranium enrichment on their soil. But we're still under the sort of the binding force of this Security Council resolution, which says they must stop uranium enrichment by the 31st. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where we are now. The introduction of, the res- of, of a UN resolution changes the legal picture quite dramatically, doesn't it? Because previously we were working under the terms of the International Atomic Energy Agency, but now we're talking about a completely different uh, legal position, are we? This becomes uh, difficult and and interesting because, as you say, uh, when we last did the podcast, I was saying that Iran, and in its maintenance of its right under Article 4 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to pursue civilian nuclear energy, technologies and programs, that they were quite right in their legal interpretation. And I was saying that the International Atomic Energy Agency and its attempts to, to stop them doing that on the basis of really no evidence to the, to the contrary, i.e. that they were pursuing a weapons program, I was saying that Iran was, was right, that they, they ought to be allowed to uh, pursue their uh, civilian energy programs un- unless and until there uh, emerged some evidence to the contrary, which had not. But now, so that's the previous context of sort of the rights rights and obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Those, of course, course still uh, are maintained, but what we have now is the Security Council acting under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter, passing Resolution 1696, and telling Iran that it must stop uranium enrichment 
essentially backing up what the IAEA had said before, and that is the role of the Security Council to do, to take a referral from the IAEA. But So now what you have is two sources of law, the, the NPT provisions and the Security Council resolution, and you have to look as an international lawyer to what happens when you have two conflicting sources of law in this area. I would say that the Security Council resolution under Chapter 7 uh, does indeed change the legal landscape because of Article 25 of the Charter, which says that all decisions of the Security Council are binding upon member states, of which Iran is one, and specifically in the case of a conflict of two treaties, as you have here, you have to look to Article 103 of the United Nations Charter, which says that the, the obligations under the United Nations Charter, which include Article 25, which then includes Article se Chapter 7, you see, in a sort of a logical train, that those obligations are superior to obligations under any other treaty. And I think that you, and I know this is a bit controversial, that do you also include rights under another treaty under this? I think that you do, uh, because if, you know, we can talk about this more, but what Article 4 of the NPT actually says is it recognizes an inalienable right to pursue uh, civilian nuclear technologies. So what you've got there is a situation in which either by the treaty terms of, of 103, Article 103 of the UN Charter, I think you do have a trump of any rights or obligations that are conferred by the NPT. I think that is the proper legal interpretation. Or if you take it another way and say that, well, it's not a treaty right, it's an inalienable right. Well, then you have to ask, what is the juridical nature of that right? Is it a right under custom? Is it a right under Jus Kogan's? I don't think it is a right under Jus Kogan's. This is getting awfully legalistic. But if it's a right under custom, I think that it, too, is trumped by uh, the UN Charter in a lex specialis way. So as I know it's a, it's a controversial issue, but it, in the way that I would interpret this, I think that the Chapter 7 resolution does change the legal obligations of Iran. It does impose... A, a deadline of August 31st for them to stop uranium enrichment. That's as far as we can sort of go legally then to say, I do think that they now have an obligation to comply. Uh, whether they will or not is a completely different question. We may want to. Why is the Security Council then taking the decision to change the game at such a weird stage? That is enigmatic, as I said before, <laughs> and I, it's inexplicable to a degree. I I was surprised. I really was. Because you had this, uh, the, the Iranians saying that they were going to respond, and I would have thought that the normal sort of diplomatic course would be to go ahead and let them respond, even if it took longer than you wanted it to. I, I can only sort of postulate that, that maybe, you know, th this was certainly being pushed by the United States. They're the, sort of the prime agitators, if you will, for pushing for a sort of a diplomatic escalation in the Security Council. And it may be that they were sort of tired of waiting. They thought that Iran, and not just tired of waiting, but they thought that Iran perhaps was just sort of stringing it along with carrots that were they were never really going to, to stop uranium enrichment. Uh, that's a possibility. I mean, if you want to take the other view, the sort of the more cynical view, it may be the case that uh, the West, and particularly the United States, are in doing this trying to essentially force a crisis, trying to force Iran into a, in a, into a corner legally, 
And uh, because, you know, knowing that Iran is not going to stop uranium enrichment, it's quite clear that they're not going to do that. And so knowing that, to set a timetable by which you know they are not going to comply, it sort of forces a standoff then between Iran and the Security Council. And, you know, exactly what the motives for doing that would be are unclear, but it's possible that, uh, you know, again, taking the more cynical view, that this standoff is being forced in order to give some justification for unilateral action, whether that on the part of the United States and perhaps some group of coalition of the willing, uh, that unilateral action might take the form and probably most likely would take the form of uh, more economic sanctions on a unilateral basis. Uh, If I was Ambassador Bolton, I would know that even if I were to get a deadline by the Security Council in a Chapter 7 resolution, I would be very unlikely to get economic sanctions approved by the Council in the event of Iran's breach, you see, because China and Russia have all along been very cold-footed about that, and they've just recently, in the last few days, said that they're, all, you know, to paraphrase them, but say they are not really going to consider economic sanctions. So, with that, knowing that as sort of your diplomatic and legal options, perhaps it makes sense to force a standoff, to force a crisis, mm-hmm. to give yourself justification to say then, the Security Council has once again failed, as it did in the Iraq situation. Therefore, we have just we have some right to take matters into our own hands and impose unilateral economic sanctions or, at the most extreme, military force. Iran's been saying quite a few different things in the last couple of weeks. I mean, we've had statements from uh, the Supreme Leader that, um, the, that Iran would vow never to give up nuclear technology um, and that Western regulators are holding back the country. And yet, in the official response to the uh, the UN Security Council's demand, there's a sort of more conciliatory approach in saying, you know, we're open to like to have some serious debate, debate and discussion about this. Um, and then, of course, we're, we're sort of looking at bellicose statements about uh, wiping Israel off the map. Where does Iran actually really sit in this issue? Well, if I knew that, I'd have some uh, some stock and trade to sell. I mean, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I think that uh, well, the view of the West is certainly that they're playing games that they are stalling for time. If you accept the idea that Iran is really pursuing nuclear weapons, you might be thinking that Iran is simply, uh, sort of, again, sort of holding out these vague carrots of possible uh, diplomatic accord. Maybe we will consider uh, you know, a, a moratorium in the future, maybe. And that they're essentially playing for time so that they can get further along in their research, perhaps even develop some of the, the closer nuclear technologies to actually producing a warhead. What they may be hoping to do is, is buy time and also use, I mean, th- this is the suspicion, is that they, uh, they in this last uh, conflict between Israel and Lebanon, that uh, Iran is doing other things, such as using Hezbollah uh, as a sort of a, a puppet or a proxy to, uh, to get international attention off of them to, to further buy time. These are the sorts of, uh, of arguments that, that you hear. What they're uh, what they're really doing is anybody's guess. I mean, I I do think I think it's clear though that they are very serious about pursuing nuclear technologies. You know, whatever their ambitions are, whether they're civilian civilian or military, it seems pretty clear that they uh, they're they're quite co- quite committed to not be deterred from it. Iran has put forward the request to to take part in serious talks about the issue of. Um uh, its nuclear program. How has the Security Council responded to those requests? Well, uh, so we're just seeing sort of the initial uh, feelers from uh, the response yesterday. Russia and China have both taken the view 
that uh, this new proposal, in a sense, a sort of a, a, a re-proposal by Iran, should be taken seriously. And that even if it's not in fitting with the framework that we were working with before, that Iran must give up uranium enrichment, it must do this, this, and this that was sort of imposed on it by the Security Council, even if it doesn't sort of go in that framework, even if it proposes a new way, that it should be taken seriously. Russia and China being permanent members of the Security Council, this is important, that this is what they think. Uh, the U.S. Is, is holding its comments uh, pretty close to its chest at the moment while it reviews and sort of takes stock of what cards it now has in its hand, uh, seeing those statements by Russia and China. But in a sense, they have already backed themselves into a, into a corner, uh, the United States has, uh, in pushing the Security Council so hard to, to escalate the, the crisis to the point that it has, where now the Security Council has demanded that they give up uranium enrichment. And if they don't, if they embark on this new framework, whatever it is, diplomatically, uh, it becomes an issue of uh, you know, what is the Security Council going to do now? Is, does it have the political will among its members to impose economic sanctions? And I would say, and I, I would say that this is sort of the, the end line of what I and others have predicted would happen all along that in the beginning, when the crisis in February, when the IAEA referred the issue to the Security Council, that was the big mistake because it, the United States and other members of the Security Council should have looked ahead to this point and known what cards it held and known that it did not hold the economic sanctions card. And since it did not hold the economic sanctions card and because of the continuing problems in Iraq and Afghanistan, it really essentially does not hold the military action card either. Uh, that's my interpretation. And so not having these cards in its hand, it should not have played the refer to the Security Council hand because it should have known in a sort of a, a prescient view of what was going to happen that this eventuality would occur. And so now we are sort of at the, at the point of evolution that should have been seen originally, but apparently was not, and that now we have to deal with the fact that there is going to be a showdown between Iran and the Security Council. And again, depending on what view you take, either the sort of, oh, we made a mistake here, uh, and now we have to sort of try to figure out a compromise view, or if you take the cynical view that this is what they intended all along, under either view, here we are in, in, a, in, a, in a showdown between the Security Council and Iran. So, August 31st, comes yeah, and goes. Right. Iran doesn't stop enriching uranium, or right. at least um, we believe that Iran doesn't stop. And we're saying that uh, the Security Council has kind of backed itself into a corner. And what are the possible outcomes come September mm. the 1st? Well, diplomatically, I think that the only way to reach uh, an accord is for both sides to back down a bit. But this is classic diplomacy. This is what always happens. You you, uh, you lay out a position, but you've got to then be amenable to climbing down a bit, to compromising. Um, and if you like the what you might call the Jerusalem issue, meaning the sort of the intractable issue in this, uh, in this crisis, is the issue of enrichment of uranium on Iranian soil. The Iranians say it's, it's a non-starter for them to, to stop producing uranium, enriching uranium on their own soil. The West says... It's a non-starter to go any further without that. So this is sort of where heads butt. Uh, I have thought uh, for some time that the only, the only possible way out of this 
is a compromise deal along the lines of what was offered, what seemed to be offered. And this was this was interesting. Some months ago, uh, there was a, a proposal floating around for there to be enrichment of uranium occurring on Russian soil and a deal for supplying that uranium to Iran. Uh, now, this at the time, the the official proposal from the sort of the permanent five and plus Germany was uh, the idea of this being a complete package, meaning that Iran would have no uranium enrichment, enrichment on its soil, all of it happening in Russia and having a uh, quote-unquote secure um, supply system to Iran. Iran rejected this because it didn't believe the promises of a secure supply and thought, you know, the next time we get into a political scuffle, you're going to shut off the valve. And so they rejected that. But at the time, Russia made on its own, and this only lasted for a couple of days, it, it made overtures about a possible compromise deal in which most of the uranium enrichment would happen on Russian soil and there'd be a secure uh, supply under diplomatic agreement, but that there would be some enrichment activity, at least research, on Iranian soil, that they would be able to keep, excuse me, the technologies for enriching uranium, that they would be able to continue research under the safeguards of the IAEA, uh, as verifiable as it can be, and that this would be, in a way, a compromise deal. I really think that the military card is essentially off the table. Uh, even if you're talking about uh, limited airstrikes on Iran's uh, facilities, which of course they could do, they know where they are. Where they are, uh, they could be bombed. But I, I, I think that the implications of that would be just, just frightening. And Iran now has said specifically that if they are attacked, they will attack Israel. And I personally would not underestimate a, a man like Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. I, I, I think that he is capable of that. I may be reading him wrong, but anyway, so I think that the military card, since since we're, I think we're just, do not have the political will and in the United States and other countries for a sort of a regime change, uh, preemptive strike, uh, sort of infantry on the ground like we saw in Iraq, I, I just don't think that's in the cards. But even if we're talking about more limited airstrikes, I think the, you know, the, the cost-benefit analysis is just not there. That if you were to do this, you, would, you might set them back for a few years. But uh, if they want nuclear tech, if they want nuclear weapons, they're going to get them. It's it's not a matter of uh, you know can you stop a country that wants nuclear weapons from getting them. If they want them bad enough, they'll get them. So you have to sort of deal with that reality and and try to work with it. Whilst the military option may be off the cards for the UN Security Council, there are previous examples in the region where other mm. nations have yeah. taken military action. Uh, against nuclear development, particularly thinking about Israel's airstrikes yeah. in Iraq. Is that yeah. a possibility? No, you, you did put your finger on it there. I, I, so I would say that from a, sort of the U.S.-European perspective, the, the military card is not on the table. With the recent, uh, what many are seeing as a failure to subdue Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, I think uh, you know Prime Minister Olmert in Israel is, is in a bit of a pickle with his uh, you know his his domestic support, and you might think that it's a time when uh, he might consider bolstering that support by a bold move against Iran. I I can't say I cannot say that that is off the table. I mean because I I think if you try to predict Israel with it when it comes to preemptive uh, use of force. Uh, you, you're you're fooling yourself because Israel feels more threatened now, I think, than it did before the Lebanese the, the recent war in Lebanon. Because it it really has taken sort of a, a public 
relations beating in that it was not able to subdue these sort of uh, irregular militia members right next to it. And uh, the IDF has a, has a long history of sort of uh, a very strong action, winning conflicts. They don't lose battles like this. Um, and so I think that they're, they feel more threatened now by Iran, by Syria, and by uh, their neighbors generally than they did beforehand. And so you've got a, uh, you know, a, a formula there for a possible, uh, a possible action. There are going to be many other countries who are not necessarily directly involved in the diplomatic efforts around um, the Iranian nuclear position who are going to be watching this with extreme interest. What are the implications of the current uh, tensions for the whole issue of nuclear proliferation around the world? Yeah. Well, we 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 have seen this, uh, you might call a sort of a backlash against the non-proliferation regime after uh, the war in Iraq. Uh, all, by countries who might possibly have considered uh, negotiating on their nuclear weapons. I'm thinking here of North Korea, particularly, uh, because, you know, sort of under the reason reasoning that they see what has happened, say, if you take the situation in Iraq, in, Iraq, in which there was a country that uh, was thought to maybe be on the path to developing nuclear weapons, uh, but didn't quite have them yet, and they were attacked but then you have North Korea, who has been screaming at the top of its lungs, we've got them <laughs> for some time now, and has not been attacked, then what is the lesson that you draw from that? If you are uh, a, a state that might be classed by the United States as, as a rogue state, a uh, proliferation threat, what is the lesson that you rationally draw from that? Well, if you're Iran, you draw the lesson that we need to get nuclear weapons sooner rather than later to avoid, both to, for its own sort of regional um, security calculus that we were talking about before with Israel, but also uh, to avoid uh, being uh, the target of a preemptive sort of regime change action in future. So I think that now that uh, this action in, in Lebanon has occurred, in which the, the militia, the Hezbollah militia, were seen to have, have withstood the Israeli attacks, this has really given sort of a shot in the arm to uh, countries that might have been thinking that they could stand up to the United States and, and to Israel too. But, I mean, certainly that was standing up to Israel, but it was seen, you know, the United States is always seen as the primary backer of Israel. And, and uh, you know, if, if this uh, militia, Hezbollah militia, can stand up to the West, essentially, then uh, maybe we can too. So I, I think that Iran feels particularly emboldened at the moment, and so do other other states that might be thinking that, well, we might just get away with standing up to, to the West on nuclear issues, other WMD issues. So I, I think that we're, we're not at a high point uh, for the sort of the, the influential uh, nature of, uh, sort of the Western-controlled institutions like the IAEA and the Security Council uh, for trying to stem the tide of uh, WMD proliferation. Are we seeing the slow, painful death of the uh, Nuclear Proliferation Treaty at the moment? Uh, I, I don't know if it's a slow, painful death. It's a, it's a treaty that's been around a long time, uh, signed in 1968, and things have changed. Uh, I mean, that's the short version. I think that, uh, I've been saying this, that I think the, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty needs a serious revision, a real look at it to... to to see if we can uh, sort of amend it to to more accurate, accurately reflect modern realities. We've got uh, a number of states now who feel, like Iran, who feel that 
again, the cost-benefit analysis is just not working for them under the NPT. They're, you know, they're, these are countries, uh, include India and Pakistan. These are countries that uh, have not felt that the, the grand bargain of the NPT has worked out for them. Say, in the case of Iran, they're thinking, well, you know, we say that we are going along with our obligations, and yet, because of suspicions not based on evidence, we are effectively being denied our rights under the NPT. And so why then are we going along with the costs of the NPT? Why are we uh, not openly saying we are, like North Korea, that we are uh, developing nuclear weapons? Uh, North Korea pulled out of the thing, and yet nothing has happened to them. So, you know, what is the, what is the benefit of, of this cost? Um, India is, is another difficult problem, in the, India and Pakistan, I should say, in that both of them have, have developed nuclear weapons outside of the NPT. That's difficult. Uh, you've got the, the, the most recent deal between the United States and India to, to share nuclear technologies. Uh, this is very controversial because the, the, the United States, of course, is a nuclear weapon state under the NPT, and India is not a member of the NPT at all. This deal between the United States and India is is certainly undermining of the spirit, if not the letter, of the NPT. And so we, I think that the NPT, because of these various uh, you know complications that are that are happening, and sort of showing that the framework of the NPT uh, perhaps is either uh, fundamentally flawed in its structure or that it's not being uh, implemented very well. Maybe you could say at the at the, sort of the extreme that we're seeing the effects of having a, uh, what, a 45-year-old treaty uh, governing such a dynamic area of, um, of international relations and technology development. Dan, thank you very much. Thank you.